Genesis 3, I do know that. Not, not so much on announcements. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at a little bit more here out of, out, of, out of Genesis 3. We touched on it last week, if you were with us. Uh, and we looked at kind of the effects of Adam and Eve's uh, act of disobedience in, in terms of the, the uh, vertical impact it had on their relationship with God, uh, the internal impact that it had on themselves, uh, and the horizontal impact that it had on their relationships with one another. Uh, and, and, you know, hopefully, hopefully you gleaned a lot out of that. Uh, you know, Desmond Alexander, who writes a lot of uh, commentary in the Old Testament, he, he, he talks about how the significance of Genesis 3 cannot be overestimated. There's a lot in there. It's an it's a important, formative chapter for us understanding our place in this world, our relationship with one another, and ultimately our relationship with God. And so we'll, we'll, we'll squeeze a little bit more out of it, and then next week we'll, we'll move into to Genesis 4 um, and look at Cain and Abel. Amen? So let's read here together, starting there. In verse 1, which we read last week, this week we'll, we'll only read the first seven, chap- seven verses rather than the whole chapter. So it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat free- fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, from it, your, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Uh, let's have a prayer, and then we'll look at this text together. Uh, Father, we, uh, you know, we do pray, God, do you help us this afternoon as, as we, you know, as we c- consider you know, the lies that, that, that Satan sells to Adam and Eve, God. Father, we know that... that these lies are in many ways things and, and attitudes that we've bought into ourselves and, and, and have so infiltrated our minds and our hearts uh, and our wills, God, that, that uh, it's difficult at times to, to, to see which way is up, God. We, we pray, God, that we can you know, look soberly at your word and, and, and what you record for us, God, and you know, to leave here more equipped to follow you and to listen to you and to trust in you, God. Help us in all this endeavor, God. Pour out Abundant grace and mercy and forgiveness on us all because we desperately need it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, as, as I said earlier from Desmond Alexander, it is such a pinnacle, pinnacle section. And then, you know, last week we did, we talked a lot about, you know, the, the other various attributes. But, but we did kind of just skim, you know, what, what Satan says. And, and you think about this quote even here from, from John Salheimer. He says, the story of the temptation is told with subtle simplicity. The snake speaks only twice, but that is enough to offset the balance of trust and obedience between the man, the woman, and the creator. Let me think about that. I mean, really, two sentences, and he derails everything. And even as we go further and further into Genesis, it's not like, it's not like Satan is there again speaking to Cain, whispering in his ears. I mean, these, 
these ideas uh, are, are very profound, and they do, as, we, as I pray, they, they infiltrate our hearts, they infiltrate our minds, and they, they, they shape our worldview, which then shapes our choices, all right? Uh, and it's, a, you know, so, so today, this afternoon, we'll, we'll look at just the two aspects of this, right? Because he does. He speaks twice, uh, and we'll break down those two uh, words of temptation, right? The first one being that of, 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 of there in verse 1, did God really say? Did he really say that? Right? What, what's behind that? What, what, is, what is Satan doing? What is, he, what is he talking about? Right? What does it mean? And the second we'll, we'll, we'll look at, uh, which contains a couple lies, right? He, there in verse 4 where he says, you will certainly not die. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we'll look at these two things, right? Uh, first one being, you know, this point that Timothy Keller makes in his sermon on this text, in that it starts with a sneer. It's a, it's, a, it's a mocking tone. Does God really say that? Right? And the second being that it leads to lies. And lies about consequences of sins, consequence of our actions, right? and the very character of God, which is behind the commandments. So we'll look at those two points very quickly. Not as quick as, not as, quick as Matt's contribution talk, but quick nonetheless. <laughs> Consider this person, right? It starts with a sneer. I mean, it's a funny thing, really, right? And you see a couple translations up there, uh, NIV, the NET, and ESV. Did God really say, right? The NET, is it really true that God said? And then the ESV, I think, maybe captures it a little bit better. Did God actually say it? Right? Satan is not, hopefully as you, you can tell from the various translations, he's not, he's not like inquiring of Eve some information that he can glean uh, and then put into practice himself. Right? It's, it is a sneer. It's a mockery. He's saying, that's ridiculous. It's laughable. Did God really say that? You know, face value, like we did talk about it a little bit last week. It's a tree. One tree in a garden of endless yeses. It's one no. And, and so maybe Satan is, is, is po- poking at that. And we've all, we've all maybe had that experience of someone, uh, you know, kind of doing that level of mock or laugh at. Right? Uh, we, I get it a lot. Michelle and I do a lot of premarital counseling. I won't name names, uh, you know. But uh, you know, we, we, you know, if you sit, and a lot of you do sit down with some of the young married couples, and you see, you hear sometimes stuff that that soon-to-be husbands or new husbands say, and, and you can't help be like, but bury your head in your hands. Say, did you did you really say that? Did you really did, like that came out of your mouth? Really? Right? Again, I won't name names, but we were doing one uh, you know, in the distant past, or maybe not so distant past. And, and you know, we were having a chat about expectations in marriage and, and how much housework, you know, and, and who does what and uh, what percentage. And the, the soon-to-be husband says with a dead straight face you know, he expects his wife to do 90%. And, you know, Michelle and I kind of do like the, uh, the obligatory laugh, like, okay, you're joking, okay. No, 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 really, that's, that's what I think. <laughs> it's like, did you really think that was going to go down well? You know, and it's, it's that same kind of mockery of, like, did you really say that? And that's kind of what Satan's doing, but you think about that, and you think about what that is aimed at accomplishing, that mockery. Right? For Michelle and I in premarital counseling, it's, it's trying to get someone that, 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 that needs to shift their, their attitude. Not just the content of what they're saying, but something deeper that those words are flowing out of. Satan is doing the same thing here 
with Adam and Eve. He's trying to get them to laugh at what God said. He's trying to get them to see that, that God's word, his commandment, that that's, man, that's ridiculous that he would say that. That's ridiculous that he would lay that out as a stance of what is right or wrong. Timothy Keller points out, he says, the fall of the human race starts not with an action or even with a thought, but with an attitude of the heart. An attitude of the heart. You know, and we all, we all I think, are faced with this attitude. This attitude is becoming more uh, and more, I think, mainstream and public uh, and, and unrestrained. The mockery that people feel uh, and express towards anything to do with religion, anything to do with God, and, and for sure, anything that has to do with the Bible. Uh, again, if you, if you share your faith, you talk about your faith, uh, uh, you know, in your, in, your, in your circle of friends, in your neighborhood, uh, in, in your place of, of work, or if you're a uni student, uh, for sure, because I think that's very much the front line. Uh, primary school, they're probably the only people exempt in life at this point uh, from the cultural phenomenon, but for sure, secondary school, I mean, if you, if you express any kind of conviction about God or the Bible, you will be met with mockery. People will laugh at you. They'll sneer at you. Their heart's full of contempt towards God, and they will mock you. And, 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 and that's a hard thing for us, as we can see with Adam and Eve. It undoes them almost instantly. right? Because it does. It strikes at something in the very core of us. right? And none of us, none of us want to be... Uh, labeled, you know, various things. None of us like being laughed at. No, none of us like being ridiculed, uh, you know, but, but we've got to see that, that that tactic that the world by and large uses day in and day out against people that have faith has its root in Satan. He's the originator of it. He's the one who came up with it, would craft it. He is a crafty servant. He's, a, he's the one who is, has, has realized that, man, that's a way to subvert, in some sense, the mind, because I think it is very much a subversion of the mind. I think most people that, that laugh at religious beliefs, if you actually you know, can, can you know, be thick-skinned enough or just let the insult ricochet off you and actually try to have an intelligent conversation with people, most people who sneer at religion actually have no like, clear intellectual concept of why your stance in terms of faith is actually an incorrect stance. They don't actually have a reason. And I, I think, man, that's probably nine times out of ten. I mean, I, I deal with a lot of university students uh, and, and young professionals, and, and you talk to someone, and they often, you know, they do. They, they come with the, the sneer at first, but then you actually press them a little bit. They have no clue what they're talking about. They have no idea. They'll, they'll make this bold claim of, you know, you don't really read the, the Bible. It's an archaic text. You know, and, and you press them, well, what aspect of it? Well, I don't know. I've never read it. Well, why are you sneering then? You have no idea what you're talking about. But it's an effective way of shifting our attitudes. And Satan uses that here with Adam and Eve. He uses that to try to get around them and get to their hearts and turn them away from God. And I encourage you to... to uh, to, to make decisions and, and equip yourself even to be able to stand up against that. Because the reality is, uh, as, as our world goes more and more secular, more and more unhinged from, from the, the anchoring principles of society, 
what we've been studying here in Genesis will become more and more apparent. And I know I've hammered this intentionally over and over. The whole sequence of Genesis 1 and 2 is God creates and he sees, he looks at and he says that's good. It's not like he's appreciating the pure beauty of its existence. It's the idea that it works. It functions. And that's an important concept to get into our hearts. Because all of God's word is governed towards that. Human flourishing is found in God's word. Because he's the creator, he's the source. And you can ignore it all you want, and you'll reap the consequences of that. Because it won't, your life won't end up good. It won't work. And you can do that. And I've talked about this before. Um, you know, the, the, you can do that with any sin, really. You can take any sin and you can run its course on why it is ultimately destructive to not just your own life, but men's society's own. You can do it, the most easy, the easiest to do is that of, of, of sexual morality, sex outside of marriage. Right? And if, you, if you're a young person and you take that stand, you say, I'm not going to have sex until I'm married. You, you will be met with, with sneers, contempt. This is no joke. I studied with someone earlier this year, and he was on the cusp of becoming a Christian, and he went home and talked to his parents uh, about that decision. And his mom's number one concern was make sure that you don't wait until marriage and have sex. Because she's bought into the try-before-you-buy mentality of our world. Right? And that was kind of shocking to, to hear that coming from someone's mother. And it wasn't, you know, but it, but it is the world, right? The world sneers and mocks and looks down on with contempt towards God's law. But man, you take something as simple as sex outside of marriage, how does that destroy a person's life? It's massively, massively. You open your door to sexually transmitted diseases. I mean, if, if you fall pregnant outside of marriage, right, and that child, you know, this day and age, is actually able to be born, which is a rarity, Right, A child that grows up in a household that doesn't have a mom and a dad is statistically so far greater likelihood to end up in the prison system. And it's like 90% of people on death row in America awaiting capital punishment came from a single parent home. Why? Because our culture sneers at God's commandments. Looks down on with contempt and thinks they know what's good rather than what God says is good. We've got to see that attitude arises here, right in the beginning from Satan. Right? It starts with a sneer. I encourage you, equip, equip yourself. Equip yourself so when people mock you or laugh at your faith, you are prepared to give a reason why you have hope. You are prepared to push back. A book I read earlier this year is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Right? It's by three authors uh, Geisler, Turek, and Limbo. And it's a good book because it gives you some, you know, clear answers. And man, you, you, we, we got to be able to answer back because you, you in your heart got to realize that temptation comes to you, it begins often with that sneer. And you got to even train yourself to be able to respond to that and for sure impact the world around you, especially if you have kids. Especially if you have kids. I'll talk more about this in a second, but man, you know, uh, young people today, especially teenagers, have more cultural pressure on them than ever before in history. 
I mean, the question is that my 13-year-old comes home from school with sometimes. It's crazy. Crazy. And, and, and it's an equipping process, get, helping them get answers to be able to respond back to that contempt that the world feels towards God that has its roots in Satan. Amen? Secondly, it starts with a sneer, but man, it leads to lies. And it leads to some pretty massive lies. All right? The verse, chapter 3 again, verses 4 to 5. Satan, first thing he says is, you will not certainly die. Right? You will not certainly die. He, he, he's telling a lie about the consequences of their actions. All right? Now, there's a trickiness about this. Because do Adam and Eve have a bite and then pass out like Snow White? No. <laughs> they, don't, they don't instantly die. And, uh, you know, maybe that would have been better for mankind, but probably not since God didn't do it that way. But maybe why didn't God do it that way? Why didn't God just strike them down, Adam and Eve? Well, if he did, that'd be bad for all of us. And why doesn't God deal with all of us that way? I mean, anyone sin today? Just me? Just me and Ada. Right. Kara and Andrew, too late. We don't count. Too late. You didn't vote quick enough. You weren't awake. The judgment's on you. Right. You know, I mean, if, if he did deal with us that day, man, we, we, would, we wouldn't be here. Right? Now, why, God, why doesn't God deal with us this way? Right? Why, why doesn't he just strike us down, you know? Uh, physical death is part of what he has in view here, right? Because that is part of the curse. From dust you come, dust you're going to return. They're, they're cut off from the tree of life. Uh, you know, so, so it's, it's not just spiritual death, like Augustine said. It is an element of physical death. But, but why? I mean, the slowness of the reap what you sow principle is an act of grace. But in some sense, Satan is, is having a dig at that. You know what I mean by we reap what we sow, right? We, 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 we choose to disobey. We choose to rebel. We, we do eventually reap the consequences of it. Now, it's not immediate. It takes time. And, and, and I would say that, you know, one of the big purposes of that time period is that of God's kindness, his tolerance, his patience, like Romans 2, 4 says. That that, that way of dealing with us is meant to lead us to repentance, but the lie that Satan is feeding here is this idea of that that slowness actually tells you that God is saying no to that, but there's actually no reason that he should be saying no to that because you can do that and it's not going to happen. Nothing bad is going to come your way. And we begin to think that and we begin to even experience that and we begin to think, okay, well, it's not that big what I'm doing here. And you know what? It doesn't really hurt anyone. And, and so I'm still going to do it. And we then think, oh, the next day we wake up and life seems okay. And, and we think it's okay. And we begin to buy into this lie of then you're not going to die. But then what happens over time is your heart gets harder. And that spiritual death that Augustine is talking about begins to harden you more and more. And you end up believing more and more lies. You end up be, being someone who is deceived and is deceiving others. And you end up more and more hardened by that sin's deceitfulness. And you begin to lose sensitivity more and more. And then you end up doing something that you never thought you would ever do. I mean, all too often, 
I sit down with people who, who have made a choice and made a decision and done something in their life that if you would have asked them a year ago, they would have said, I wouldn't, I'll never do that. But then lo and behold, they did it. And for a lot of them, it's kind of like, oh, how did that happen? I don't know how it happened. But one of the important things that, that I try to help them realize is, well, it didn't just happen. You've made a series of choices and decisions leading up to that moment. And, and God has shielded you in many ways for the consequences of it. But that kind act that God has shown you, you have shown contempt for that. Because that first lie has taken root in your heart. Of the sneer at God's command and the pride that looks down on God's word. And you've bought into that mentality and that's why you've become unrepentant. That's why Paul writes what he writes in Romans 2.4. Or do you show contempt? For the kindness, riches, patience, tolerance that God shows. Not realizing these things are meant to lead you toward repentance. But if we're buying into Satan's lies, they're not going to lead us towards repentance. That's one of the big lies that he feeds us. Is you will certainly not die. There won't be consequences for your actions. Don't buy into them. Every action, every attitude of the heart, every decision, it can have a profound effect on your life if not in this life, in the age to come, for sure. Secondly, here in terms of lies, it's not just consequences he lies about. Look, look, look what he says here. He says to Eve, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, now look closely here at Genesis. If you've got a paper Bible, look, look. Look back a little bit. And if you look in, in chapter 1, 1-1 one, one, all the way to 2-4, every time God is referenced, it's God. Just G-O-D, right? When creation zooms in, and we have the two, the two complementary creation accounts, when it zooms in on the creation account that involves Adam and Eve, he then uses Lord God. Right? And, and for the Jewish people, again, this was their they were the primary audience to that. That is God's covenant name, right? And, and so, from from in, in the beginning, when God's creating, when there is no people yet, in some sense, it's it's God. But then, once people are on the scene, it's Lord God. It's covenant God. It's not the distant, all-powerful, all-knowing Creator. Uh, and that's the sole aspect that you know of Him. No, 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 no. There's another aspect here. He is still that great creator, but he's, he's your covenant God. He's in relationship with you. He's not distant and far off, inaccessible. No, no, no. He is with you, and you are his people. All right? Now, when Satan talks about God, which name do you think he's going to use? The, the God that's close to you, Lord God, your covenant God, the one who's in relationship with you, who has rescued you out of slavery in Egypt and brought you into the promised land? No, no way he wants you to think about that. He wants you to only see God as far off and distant. A cold, detached dictator that gives you a bunch of rules but doesn't really walk with you. And so he distances in Eve's mind, in Adam's mind, their creator. And it's a, it's a common technique, the name switch. Right? People do it all the time with, with, with church. Right? They, 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 their discipleship gets really slack 
And they make it all about church when they talk about it. And it's not really about church, it's about Jesus. <laughs> they don't want to they don't want to say, I don't want to follow Jesus, because that sounds bad. So they say, Oh, it's about church. No, it's not. <laughs> it's about Jesus, and your issues are with Jesus and what he says. Don't, don't do the name switcheroo to try to justify your actions. That literally is one of the oldest tricks in the book. It's out of Satan. Right? But Satan goes further. He's not just painting this picture of God as a distant dictator. Right? He, he, he's, he, here's what he's saying right? Uh, as he talks about this. Right? God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. You'll be like him. Your knowledge will be greater. One of the big themes of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is the word good. As God creates and God looks, and what does he say? It's good. What, is, what does Eve do? She looks at the fruit, and it's good. Satan, what's he, what's he playing on? God, God, these are good things. Eve, God is withholding good things for, from you. He's this distant dictator that is saying no to something that will actually improve your life, that will actually better your life, will actually enable you to become more like God. Now the the tasty irony of that statement by Satan is Eve was already created in the image of God. And as God's vice regent created in his image, what was her charge, what was Adam's charge? Was to rule over the animals. But what is she doing? She's allowing an animal to rule over her. Again, probably like what Paul's talking about in in Romans 1. We worship and serve created things rather than the creator. That's the path we wander down. Who are we listening to? Satan's trying to put this this idea out that if you obey God, you're going to miss out. If you obey God, you're not going to be happy. If you obey the will of God, it'll actually cut you off from a lot of other really positive options and opportunity out there. It will hinder you from becoming what you really want to become. Satan is spouting off a contrary wisdom. He's selling his own wisdom. I don't know if you've ever read it. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've heard of it, John Milton's Paradise Lost. Right? And, and in there, right, as Satan rallies some of the angels to rebel against God, uh, one angel pushes back and objects to him uh, on the grounds that God created them all and they belong to God. Satan, of course, mocks this strange and new claim, insisting that the angels created themselves and were possessed by no one. When he's later exiled to earth, Satan uses a similar lie to convince Eve that she and Adam don't need God. They can become their own gods and live a life more perfect than their creator ever intended for them. And you think about what, what, what Milton is driving at here and what you know, the scriptures are, are exposing here about Satan is he is maligning God's character. He's trying to get us to see that the heart of God is not about your flourishing. It's not about your existence. It's not about you know, his created intent and you becoming all that he has created you to be. It's getting you to see him actually as a dictator someone who's out to withhold from you rather than look after you. And he does that by offering a counter wisdom to that of God's wisdom. You know, I was saying earlier that, that young people are, are bombarded uh, at every level 
with this other wisdom from the world. Right? I mean, two times this week, my oldest daughter came home, you know, and was talking about the wisdom that she had been fed at school. The first was by a school nurse, and the second was by a friend of hers uh, spouting off, quote-unquote, wisdom uh, that, that the Bible's viewpoint on uh, sex between, being only between a man and a woman, that that is, that is archaic. And that's actually damaging to people. And we should just accept whatever anyone wants to do. That's okay to do. Right? I mean, a school nurse is lecturing a year seven on that wisdom. Right? One of her, her, her friends pressuring the same thing. And, and what we need to see is, is it is. It's, it's lies, but it's lies that run very deep. Because it leaves, for instance, my, my daughter thinking, that's kind of like mean of God. Why would he do that? Why would he take that stance? Why would he say that, that that's wrong, even though that's how that person is? Again, it, it paints God in this picture that he is some dictator, hell-bent on your destruction. Which is the exact opposite of what he actually is. But it's a dangerous lie. And underneath that lie is that deeper and more significant lie that we've got to see that it is that maligning of God's character. You know, and as I said before, ironically, when we buy into that lie, we, we, we don't actually become like what Satan says. We don't become more like God. We become less like God. We don't become more what we are created to be. We don't fulfill that, that creative uh, intent that God has, we become less likely to fulfill it. Because we're following ourselves. And thinking of ourselves as little gods that can come up with whatever we want to come up with and believe whatever we want to believe. When you think about all that, you think about those two, again, like, uh, like Salhammer said, I mean, two sentences, essentially. Two sentences there from Satan, and it derails the whole thing. It embeds itself, and it spreads, and it flourishes, and it will continue to flourish in the narrative right up to the flood, where every incarnation of all men's hearts are evil all the time. How does the gospel free us from that? How does the gospel turn those lies actually on themselves? Right? You know, and then you think about our, the two primary things we're talking about here, right? That, that contemptual looking down on God's commands, that pride-filled approach to life. We sing songs about Jesus humbling himself, becoming like us, and encouraging us, as the gospel does, to have humility about ourselves, because the gospel does. It confronts us of our sin and forces us to see the parts of ourselves we don't want to see, and in doing that, it humbles us. And that's a good thing. That's how you get rid of that sneering, mocking, contemptual attitude of the heart that is so contrary to God. And then you think about the second point here, here we're making here about the lies, specifically the lies regarding the consequences of sin and the character of your creator. I mean, in the cross, we literally see the consequences of sin. I mean, that is the point of Romans 3 by and large. 
right? That, that, that Jesus is that sacrifice of atonement. He is taking the punishment we deserved on himself. And when we take the bread and the wine and we remember the cross and we, man, we eat that piece of bread and we, and we drink that cup, man, we are meant to think deeply about the price that was required to be paid for our sin because sin has consequences. The beautiful thing is that in the cross, it's not just the consequences that are dealt with. I mean, Romans goes to great lengths to point out the importance of faith and faith in that act of Jesus' paying our price on the cross for our sin. But you also get Romans 5, specifically verse 8, of, of why. Why did he do it? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. A demonstration of love. Well, why is love so important? Because we believe the lie of Satan. That God does not love you. He does not care about you. That he doesn't want to give you life to the full. That he actually wants to withhold life from you. But man, the cross reminds us that's not true. That's not true. You want to know how much God loves you? He has demonstrated that for you. He has literally gone to the cross, gone to hell, and come back so that you and I will know he loves us. Because if you love him and you know that he loves you, you will trust him. Because those are intricately connected. We all trust and obey, right? In some sense, have faith in those people in our lives that we are convinced love us the most. We all, do, we all understand that principle. Right? I, I love all you guys. And you can tell me what you think about me. Please don't, all at the same time. But the reality is, if Michelle says it to me, I'm going to listen a lot more than I would the rest of you. That's not a slight on you. That's a positive for her. But the reality is, is because I know she loves me, and I know she's chosen to stick with me through thick and thin, through good times and bad times, and so my trust level for her is extremely high. So if she says, hey, this is what you should do, okay, I'll do that. Right? Because I know the love, and the love fuels the trust. And Satan is trying to get rid of that trust. And he's doing that by trying to help you to think that God doesn't love you. I encourage you to, 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 to allow the gospel to confront Satan's temptations. Try, I know it's hard. I, in those moments this week, when you feel that point of temptation, where you think, man, okay, I know, I know God says this is the path, but man, I'm, I'm like a sheep, like Matt said. The people in front of me are going this way. Right? It's not because we're dumb. I appreciate that correction, right? But sometimes we are dumb, and we do, and we just we follow the crowd. But, but, but in that moment, try to stop for a second. And... and, and, and Remove yourself and think about, man, what are the lies that are being fed to me? What are the distortions of God's character that I'm buying into that are influencing which way I choose here? Because that choice matters. That choice leads to another choice, and it leads to a lifetime of choices. That's why over and over the Bible is appealing to us. Choose today who you'll follow. Will it be God or will it be the serpent? The choice is yours. Amen. Let's have a prayer, and then we'll stand and sing, hopefully, a Christmas song. Father, we, uh, you know, we pray that you help us, God.
We know we, we, we are a people that have believed lies, that, that spread these very same lies that at times even embody the same attitude that, that, that Satan is propagating, God. And we, we pray you help us, God. You help us to, to listen to you, to trust you, to see you as you really are, our Father who is in heaven, who, who loves us, who created us, and has given us you know, your, your, your word, not, not to restrain us, but actually to protect us, God. Father, help, help us to learn to, to see your word in that light. God, we know that when we do that, the burdensomeness of it just evaporates. And we find that, 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 that joy and that freedom that James talks about as we look intently into your word. Not just, not just hearing it, but doing it, God. We know your word says we'll be blessed. We pray, God, that you do bless us, God, as we follow your word, God. Not because of our great you know, acts of goodness, God, but solely because of the mercy and the grace you've shown us through your son. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Awesome, let's stand together and sing.